You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In her new documentary, William Kunstler, Disturbing the Universe, our guest today, co-writer and co-director Emily Kunstler, teams with her sister Sarah to explore the life of their father, the late radical civil rights lawyer. In the 60s and 70s, Kunstler fought for civil rights with Martin Luther King Jr. and represented the famed Chicago 8 activists. But when Emily and Sarah were growing up, Kunstler represented some of the most reviled members of society, including rapists and assassins. William Kunstler, Disturbing the Universe, not only recounts the historic causes that Kunstler fought for, also reveals a man that even his own daughters did not always understand. Emily Kunstler, welcome to film school. Thanks so much for having me. Ah, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing great. Well, good. But, uh, are you back in New York? I am back in New York. Uh, how, are, how are things going there? Is it, uh, you, you like what's going on in New York these days? Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, the film just got extended for another week at Cinema Village, That's so, right. so that was exciting. Oh, right, that's excellent. Yeah. 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 And how, are, how are people taking it in there in that city? Because I know you spent a lot of time there, your father did. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 been, a, it's been a great response. You yeah. know, every, every night that, that Sarah and I are there for a Q&A, which we try to do most weekends when we're in town, okay. um, people come out of the woodwork who, who knew him, worked with him, so we're still collecting stories. Well, since I'm sure he had a lot of friends there, what kind of questions are you getting at these Q&As? Do you, you have any people that knew him and, and relate stories to you? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, there's, every night there's people who said they went to law school because of him. There, you uh, know, there's people who worked with him in the South. There, you know, there was a lawyer who, um, who's currently a lawyer. He was formerly an investigator who worked with him during the Wounded Knee trials. So yeah. people just, you know, it, it's, it's really been one of the most exciting parts of this has been finding people. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, yeah. has, has that... Have these stories? Well, I'm sure they've enriched your your uh, what you knew about your father. But have you been surprised at the the level of uh, affection or or the, the the inspiration that he provided for these people? Has that it, has that surprised you, or is it part of what you knew about him already? You know, it certainly wasn't part of you know of our adult consciousness. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm surprised, but I, I guess I didn't realize how many people were so profoundly affected by him. So it's it's been really encouraging um, to hear. All right. Oh, well, at what point in time did you think that you'd be making a film about your father? I mean, was this something that you uh, thought of as a child, or is this something that just came to you uh, in the last several years? It's it's really only something that Sarah and I uh, began talking about about four and a half years ago. Uh, uh, you know, if you... Watching the film, it would seem as if we, we came up with this idea much longer ago because much uh-huh. of the archival footage we had started collecting and shooting when we were um, in grammar school. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. um, but that was just stuff that we rediscovered along the way. Well, there, there, some of this film footage has you questioning him as, as young girls who are kind of grilling him about things even then. So. Yes. Well, he encouraged that. Yeah. You know, he, he, loved, he loved being challenged. He loved it when Sarah and I showed interest in his work. Uh-huh. Um, it was it was it was great flattery for him, and he really encouraged that. Now, now how would you do that? I mean, what, how what early? What am I saying? At, at what age did you first show interest? I mean, are you saying when you were uh, like five years old, you'd go in and and at least uh, take a look at things and ask him what was up, or or you mean as you were trying to decide on a career? No, his 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 work was 
um, was very much part of my home life. His office was in the basement of our house. Right. So, you know, the, the, there were very loose divisions, you know. The, the environment sort of spilled over into one another. Um, so we were, you know, we, Sarah and I grew up sleeping on, on, on the back pews of court benches. It was always part, you know, part of, of, of the ongoing dialogue in the house. I mean, of course, we talked about other things, <laughs> what we did at school that day, we, you know, what we wanted to have for dinner. Um, but it was definitely, it's interesting because there's a clip in the film where Sarah is interviewing um, our father about race and racism in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And she's quite young at the time. You know, she must have been eight or nine. So it's, it's, it's remarkable to us that we had that kind of um, consciousness um, of, of the work he was doing and of its, its larger, you know, social implications at such a young age. Can, can we just take a minute here for those of you, uh, for those of us, our listeners, who may not be as familiar as Nathan and I are with your father's work to sort of run down a list of the, the things that he was involved in, the trials that he was a part of? Sure. Well, the ones we cover in the film are, you know, our father uh, first got, got, you know, politically charged by the, by the Freedom Riders in the South. Um, and then he became um, a special trial counsel to Martin Luther King. So he was very in- involved in that, um, did, a lot of deseg- de- did a lot of desegregation cases. Then he was very involved in the anti-war movement, um, not only uh, defending war resistors, but also people protesting the war, um, the Chicago 8th, the Catonsville 9. Um, and, you know, he went on to be uh, the lawyer that the, prison, the prisoners at Attica called for during the, re- the rebellion. Um, and he was also the lawyer for the American Indian Movement, um, the leadership trial that came out of the standoff at Wounded Knee. Um, so, and, even, go ahead, I'm sorry. Sorry, and then in, 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 Sarah, in, in Sarah in my lifetime, he took uh, more straightforward criminal cases um, that, that sometimes, you know, left us with lingering doubts or questions about, um, about the consistency of, of, you know, of his career. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, going back, just want to go back to the, the, the very first work that he did on the civil rights issues. How did that relation, do you know how that relationship developed with Martin Luther King? And, and the, was it through the Freedom Riders and then Martin Luther King? Or how did he get involved? Did he go down there to work? He, uh, he was on the board of the, of the ACLU, uh-huh. and he got a call that they needed observers to go down and, and watch the Freedom Riders get off, get off the buses. And he, you know, was, was on his way back from a trip, stopped in um, in Mississippi, went down to the, to the bus station, the Greyhound bus station, and was completely overwhelmed and impressed by the bravery of these young people who were risking their lives um, for what they believed. Now, and now was, for people who don't know, the Freedom Riders were, in, were mostly northern, younger northern people from across the political and social spectrum, yeah. who of, went of to the South grade. to register yeah. people to vote, to essentially no, allow... Well, no, it, was, it wasn't about voter registration. The Freedom Riders were challenging oh. um, the, the, you know, the interstate um, uh, segregation on, uh, on in, in uh, the lunch counters of bus stations. Okay. Because you would be allowed to have um, interracial groups on buses, but then you would take those buses from, you know, from from states without segregation into states with segregation to challenge those those laws. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, wow. So there and so he got involved that so and then he eventually through that met Martin Luther King. Is that is that kind of how it evolved? Yes, it did. And you know, Martin Luther King was was a huge influence on my father. You know, in, in from from you know, his his interest in literature to the way that he, you know, to the way that he would orate um, to his his political development, he really credited 
um, Martin with a lot of his his development as a as a person during that period. Now, right there at the beginning of the film, uh, you uh, visit with Paul and Oriol Red. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a wonderful way to open the film. I thought. Uh, there, there's. Can you tell us a little bit about their story and and uh, sure. how your father came to meet them and and actually you know how how they ended up with their lives too. Sure. Uh, you know that actually discovering that case was was one of the one of the real surprises that Sarah and I found along the way. Yeah. We you know our bedtime stories were were you know the stories of the work he did in the South. We never we never realized that he was he was fighting for for integration so far north. Uh-huh. Um, and his neighbors, Paul and Oriel Red, were trying to find a um, a home, and they were being denied. And what my father and his his first wife Lottie did was um, they uh, they tested the rules there, and they would send Lottie would go in to see if there was an apartment available. She would you know fill out an application, and they would they would you know approve her, and then the Reds would come in uh, you know a few hours later, and they would say the apartment's gone. There's nothing on the market. Uh. Uh, so, so they, you know, they they fought this case, um, the Reds and, and and my father, and they they eventually won their home. It took them, you know, over a year and a half to do that. Uh, they integrated this this housing complex, and you know, one of the saddest parts about the story was that uh, when we were interviewing um, Mr. Red, he told us that that their family was still the only um, African American family in that housing complex yeah. today. Yeah. You know, forty years later. Uh, so that was, you know, it, there's still there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, I I know. I, I think I read in an interview with you uh, earlier that uh, yeah, when when people say that, well, we have uh, Barack Obama as president, and so so all's well now. Uh, that yeah, your, your father would roll over in his grave if he heard such a thing. No, I mean I think it, one something that was very important to to my dad, something that he spoke to Sarah and I a lot about. Um, was about how the civil rights movement was being sort of relegated to, you know, to a success of the past, and, yeah. and no one was talking about it as an ongoing struggle. And he would talk about how, you know, memorials were being erected and how streets were being named after people, you know, that used to be on the FBI's most wanted list. Uh-huh. But, you know, at the same time, they were dismantling affirmative action programs across the country, you know. Um, and... Yeah. So it was, it was conversations actually around the tenth anniversary of his death, where Sarah and I were discussing, you know, uh, these realities. I think you know Bush had just spoken at Coretta Scott King's funeral, um, and no yeah. one was even talking about the irony of it. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. It, it, speaking of Martin Luther King, I mean, people, you know, cre- so much credit him with the uh, with integrate helping to integrate the United States. Uh, all, yeah. uh, but we 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 also lose sight of the other side of his legacy, which was nonviolent resistance. Yeah. You know, civil disobedience, all, all those are the kinds of things. So that we have, we have taken the, the hallmark side of things and run with that, as opposed to the really the underbelly of what we should be talking about. Yeah, but but at the time, you know, he really didn't have that much support for for either of those issues. Yeah. You know, what, which is interesting. What do you make of kind of the institutionalization of the uh, of these movements? You know, the statues being built while at the same time you say, you know. Uh, uh, Rights are being taken away. You know, I'm I'm all for for commemorations and celebrations. I think I think it's important to acknowledge successes, uh-huh. but I, I don't think that can be a replacement for for a larger movement. Uh, you know, my father always told me that um, that it was the battle, the struggle that was important, mm-hmm. and that it was you know it was continuous, and that you had to continue to fight to preserve the rights that that had been you know that people had died for in the past, 
and that that was you know that there was no real progress. There was only this this continual fight against against a government power, which he always saw as is corrupt. Right. We're speaking with Emily Kunstler, uh, the co-director, co-writer of the film William Kunstler, Disturbing the Universe. Now, is, was it hard getting a perspective on your father? I mean. After all, he is your father. Did you, did you ever get to a point in the film where you're saying, uh, I'm, I'm going to say just b before I you give you a chance to answer, that I thought the film was beautiful, thought it was very well paced, and it, and it had a, a, a nice, I, I don't want to say complete detachment, but there was a detachment to it that I, I didn't feel so many times when uh, people do films about their, their family, there's, it, it, it becomes too earnest. Yeah. And this, th there was enough of a distance, I think, that you created. But was there ever a point where, where you were doing this thinking, oh, we're getting a little bit too close here or we're, we're uh, <laughs> being, treating our father too much like a father? You know, I think we were grateful for that. Uh, you know, it wasn't something that, um, that, that gave us any grief at all. You know, he passed away when, when Sarah and I were teenagers. We never had the opportunity to have an adult relationship with him and an adult understanding of his life. So, you know, through the process of making this film, we, you know, we got to have that. Sarah and I both feel closer to him today than, than we've ever felt to him since he passed. Um, and it's, it's brought, uh, you know, his name, you know, uh, conversations about him back into my family in a way that, I'm, I, you know, I don't think would have happened otherwise. Um, so it's been a real blessing. Well, you mentioned that uh, at near the end of his life, uh, he was def he was defending with more straight up criminal cases, and yeah. uh, there was an awful lot of uh, rancor about the people that he was defending uh, during that period of his life. Yeah, uh, I'm sure within your family there must have been some spirited discussions about what he was doing. Do you feel that, that now that you've had the opportunity to kind of do this grand overview of his of his public life and some of his private life as well, uh, that the, the what he the, the actions the people he chose to defend uh, is it put it in a in a perspective for you that you better understand? Do you feel that he was consistent to his own values um, throughout this period of his life? How, how do you how do you feel? I definitely understand things better. Um, I think that when you're when you're a child, you really want your parents to you know to to be sort of black and white to make absolute sense. You want them to be heroes. You don't want to see them as human beings. You know, this isn't something unique to Sarah in my experience. I think most children feel this way about their parents. Um, and then you know, and then he passed away when we were sort of in this period of realizing that there was this kind of conflict with the way that we viewed him and the reality of the man that he was. Do I see him today as as entirely consistent? No, but but I don't think I don't think anyone is. Right. Um, and I think it's important not to be. And one of the most important things that that Sarah and I came to realize through the process of making this film was how it's inconsistency that brings about change. I mean, inconsistency is change. And the ways in which my father was able to make a contribution, we felt were only in the ways in which he was able, you know, capable of being inconsistent. Um, and we, you know, and and and. You know, you were saying earlier about how, how we, we told the story with a degree of distance. I mean, we wanted to tell an honest story. We didn't want to make, you know, a story about, about you know, a god or an angel. We, uh -huh. wanted, we wanted him to be accessible because we wanted this not to be a pacifying film about a bygone chapter in American history. Yes. We wanted this to be a motivational film that made people realize that they had the power within their own lives to stand up and make a difference. And that even if you do that, even if you risk everything, you know, the acceptance of your peers, your friends, and even your children, you know, ultimately they'll respect you for it. Right. Uh, in some ways, 
uh, your father, William Kunstler, was a product, a byproduct, a, I would say, creation of the time times that he lived. He he was it seemed to me someone who uh, grasped the importance of of what was going on and was prepared to spend his professional life being a part of it. Do you see parallels in in the, in the time we live today? Do you, and do you see people that are in their own way? Doing the work that your father did, uh, I, I know that you're. Uh, do you see that? Do you see that happening today? Yeah, you know, I do. I think it's a little different. You know, I, I think there's there's certainly you know many lawyers and activists that that are you know are, are carrying on the tradition for sure. I you know I think that my father would have been the first person to say that 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 real sort of leaders come out on the backs of of major movements, and you know he was only given a platform to speak on uh, because you know there was a whole movement that supported him and wanted to hear that. So you know, I, I think I'm, I'm hoping it's it's a little different today. I'm, I'm hoping that that um, you don't you won't need, you don't need a tall white man standing next to somebody uh, you know next to their client in order for people to pay attention to them. I mean, maybe maybe it'll be a different reality today. At least we're, you know we're hoping for that. And you know, who knows what the difference is? Is it is it is it you know media saturation or you know is there too much distraction? Um, but uh, there's definitely people doing doing tremendous work. It's just not as visible. And you you highlight a couple. I know Michael Ratner has been uh, the work he's done. Um, there are people, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, people like him and others who are doing his, their work as well. There are tons of, of nonprofit law firms that are that are doing tremendous work. The Center for Constitutional Rights um, that that um, Michael is the, the president of, and, and my father was one of the founders of, is is, is one of those groups. Yeah. You know, in in looking back on your film and and uh, all the cases that your father was involved in, uh, the the Chicago Eight stands out, but the the one case that really sticks in my mind is uh, one involving Yusuf Salam. Yes. Uh, and, and the Central Park jogger case. Yeah. Uh, that must have really been something that uh, I don't want to say tore your family up, but it must have been a, a a difficult time for you. I mean, you show that in the film. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 ex- explain to me how you felt during that time and then uh, later on when uh, Yusef was exonerated. Sure. Uh, you know, for, for, for the audience that doesn't, isn't familiar with Yusef's case, I'll yeah. just say that he was um, arrested um, and charged with being one of the, um, the rapists of the Central Park jogger. It was a brutal rape that happened in New York in the mid-'80s. And this is a period in New York when, when race relations were really, really polarized. And this case kind of, you know, really, you know, um, exacerbated those fears. So you know, Sarah and I were were you know were adolescent girls at the time, and it was such a it was such a brutal crime, and it was so publicized. Well, and you, well, just to, just to frame this a little bit, this was a white woman who was jogging through uh, Central, Central Park, Park yeah. and she was allegedly raped by six black young black youth, and yeah. and the newspapers were referring to them as animals and in a wolf pack yeah. raped her. Yeah, uh, and so the, and, this, and your father is representing, and your father steps a wolf pack <laughs> yeah. in the minds of the public. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I just wanted to give some people some context. Yeah, in there, right? no, and, and and you know, um, Donald Trump took out a full page ad in every major New York publication calling for the death penalty be, to be reinstated for this case in particular. It, you know, there was there was so much hatred towards these young men, um, and you know, my father stood up stood up for them. You know, he he really felt towards the end of his life that that it was. Um, the most vilified people, the, you know, the people that were that were were hated, and um, well, it was a foregone conclusion that they were. Yeah, they exactly. Were. 
Yeah, that they that they you know that they would be convicted before they ever saw the inside of a courtroom. So he you know he really saw that as as an important role to play, as an important civil rights role to play. And he saw you know the Central Park um, defendants you know like the Scottsboro Boys. He thought it was sort of a throwback to the rape trials in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the Center for Constitutional Rights at that period refused to sign on to to help him with the defense because it, at that point nobody would touch it. It you know it turned out. Um, after my father passed away, that that all of the defendants were exonerated. But you know, I want to I want to you know be clear and say that it wasn't about innocence for my father. He would have been there regardless. Their rights were being completely um, violated, and they were you know they were they were young teenagers. His client Yusef Salam was 15 years old at the time and was you know uh, illegally interrogated without the presence of a parent or a lawyer. Um, so you know, and it's that. Making this film has has introduced us to Youssef and his family. He travels quite a bit with us with the film, loves standing, standing in front of an audience and talking about his case and representing himself as an exonerated man. Um, but, you know, it was, it was, that was one of the, the, the major um, experiences that we had that, that made us think, reflect upon, you know, the difficulties of our childhood, the sacrifices that we had to make in order for our father to do the work that he did um, and realize that, that, you know, that it was sort of, you know, inconsequential in the end. I mean, Sarah and I are fine. Yeah. You know, not, nothing bad ended up happening to us. Youssef lost his childhood in prison. Right. What, six years, right? Yeah, he spent six and a half years. Yeah. Six and a half years in prison. Yeah. I just want to also, uh, besides William Kunstler disturbing the universe, this film that you and, uh, and Sarah have put together, uh, you also worked on a film, uh, Tulia, Texas, the scenes from a, yes. from a drug war. Again, great work. Wonderful. Helped exonerate people who were... The people don't know about Tulia need to know about Tulia, yeah. Texas, and this insanity we call the drug war. I just want to let people know, in addition to this film, you've worked on uh, a, an, another very, very good film. And, yeah. uh, so. Actually, Sarah and I, before we made this film, have made um, almost exclusively advocacy films for, for people in prison, and Tulia, Texas was the first one that we made. Yeah. No, and, and just the story of Tulia is just a remarkable story. So Yeah. Now, no, do, you, do you have anything on tap? Are you working on something right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, we have, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to devote as much energy as we can to getting this film out there because, you know, it's small yeah. independent films really need all the help that they can get. Um, but, we, you know, we do have, have some, some ideas on the back burner that we're, we're really excited to get to once we have the time. You know, once you, when you spend so much time investigating your own family, you, you, you look for something external to, to do yeah. next. So right. we're excited to do something <laughs> outside of the personal. <laughs> all right. Very good. That's an excellent film. Congratulations on that. Thank you. The uh, film, again, is William Kunstler, Disturbing the Universe. We've been speaking with the co-writer and co-director, Emily Kunstler. Thank you so much for being a part of Film School. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at kuci.org slash filmschool.